Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on Cyberry.it using the discount code PODCAST. In this special episode of the Cyberry Podcast, we bring you the COVID Chronicles, hosted by Brian Dykstra, the CEO of Atlantic Data Forensics. In this special episode of the COVID Chronicles, we will be focusing on the Capital One data breach litigation. In this episode, we will hear from Stephen Adair, founder of Velexity, Arif Basha, the managing principal at IAS Consulting, and Tara Swaminatha from Zero Day Law. Good afternoon, good morning, or wherever you are. Uh, today is uh, June 12th. I always forget to add that in, 2020. Uh, I have no idea how many weeks we are into the pandemic, but it doesn't matter anymore. Things are starting to open up a little bit. Uh, I think It's 2020? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. 2020. <laughs> First laugh track. But, uh, um, yeah, uh, so things are starting to open up in states uh, throughout the U.S. and a little bit here in Maryland. So it's uh, it's interesting times. Uh, today is our special episode. Uh, normally, we've been talking to industry professionals about what's going on with uh, COVID in their industries. However, earlier, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago now at this point, uh, 526, there was a ruling by uh, U.S. Magistrate Judge John Anderson out of the Eastern District of Virginia in the Capital One multi-district litigation um, around privilege for a Mandiant, uh, attorney-client privilege for a Mandiant IR report. Um, and it's kind of having some ripple effects throughout the whole cybersecurity industry. So we wanted to take a moment today, this week, pause and really dig into that for a bit. And I brought the best people around for that. So uh, let me let them introduce themselves. Uh, Tara Swaminatha, go. Thanks, Brian. I'm Tara Swaminatha, and I've been working with Brian and his organization for a long time. And my background prior to becoming an attorney was as a software security consultant, although it would be complete malpractice if I tried to do any of that now. Uh, but so I was a techie first, then went to law school. Uh, as an attorney, I worked at the Department of Justice in the computer crime and intellectual property section for a few years, and then have also worked at three different big law firms, including most recently as a partner at Square Patent Boggs in the cyber and privacy practice. I have a particular interest in privilege and forensic reports because it's something that is misunderstood, misinterpreted, misused, and mischaracterized all over the place. So I'm happy to have an opportunity to talk about it. And I should mention, I also have my own firm now, which is Zero Day Law. Thank you. I was waiting for that. Plug that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Arif, you're up next. All right. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Arif Basha. I am an um, industry practitioner. I have been around. Um, I started out in technology. My background is engineering. Then I was in computer science and then moved, in, moved over to uh, cybersecurity. I, was, I worked in broad areas of security, security operations, architectures, in risk, compliance, audit, all those areas. In all the jobs I've done, work closely with uh, legal folks because they can't keep our noses out of anything. <laughs> they, they keep us out of trouble. Okay. Uh, oh, that's nice. Nice way to put it. And, um, and we use them as our uh, backups as well, because a lot of times security folks don't have a good uh, understanding of the legalities of all things we, we get involved in. And uh, most recently, I've been working in incident response as well as uh, threat assessment management work for big firms where <clears throat> I, over a period of 10 years or so, I had the opportunity to work on many breaches um, that involved third-party involvement, le legal and um, cyber insurance and breach response, inside outside councils and all those things. So I'm happy to add my two cents. I should also add Arif and I met in the uh, lobby at, uh, I think it was WFO at a FBI sort of one day read in classified briefing on threats to the healthcare industry, which is now several, several years ago, but just a small world connection. Or at the right. FBI event, yes. Stephen, uh, what, what are you doing for us? 
Hey, Brian, thanks. Uh, what I do here, uh, you know, a little bit of everything, but at uh, Velocity, I'm the president. Um, at Velocity, we do a lot of incident response, forensics, network security monitoring, a lot of engagements to help um, organizations across kind of all sectors and industries um, deal with breaches, threats, you know, proactively or reactively. Um, obviously, on the, you know, the IR front, um, you know, this topic, you know, I wouldn't consider myself to be a legal expert by any means. So I'm glad we have Tara um, you know, on here to kind of provide that insight. Um, but we've, you know, I don't even know, you know, six plus years we've been doing engagements where it's been pretty commonplace for outside counsel to be engaged in some aspect, whether it's on the at the start um, of an incident or you know somewhere you know in between. So it's something we've been you know doing for quite a while, um, you know, at the you know, the direction of counsel when we get engaged with a customer. Um, but I'd say, you know, gosh, in the last you know, less than five years, last two three years, it's become. Now, I wouldn't say every engagement has that type of, um, you know, attempted or, or successful privilege wrapped around it, uh, but it's, you know, extreme commonplace now. Um, so, you know, glad to provide any insight and input I have on that. Um, me personally, I uh, do a lot of instant response forensics and myself and with our team here. Um, we have a lot of expertise, obviously, in the memory analysis and reacquisition space of Velocity. Not obvious. Why, why don't you explain that to us, the whole volatility of Velocity thing? <laughs> So the, the VOL may be there. So, you know, obviously some of our, uh, you know, founders, our co-founders in the company um, and people, you know, in the company uh, actively work and run a project called Volatility, you know, the open source memory analysis framework you know, written in Python. Um, and we have kind of commercial capabilities for one, doing memory analysis um, and you know, also acquiring memory, you know, that we sell on the product side of our house. And we also use, you know, eat our own dog food and we do engagements and incident response um, kind of efforts. So we use those tools quite heavily ourselves. Um, and then just a little quick background about me is I, uh, the company as well as myself spend a lot of our time, we work on engagements of all kinds of extortion, ransomware, VEC, you know, random compromise. Uh, but we spend a lot of our time in the realm of cyber espionage and quite a bit. And I uh, personally spend quite a bit of my time working with dissidents, um, NGOs, activists, and people who are um, potentially targeted at the individual level and not large corporations. Um, not quite as uh, relevant to today's discussion, but that's just a, a big area that we like to focus on is you know, kind of sometimes helping the uh, under-equipped kind of deal with threats that are from a nation-state type level. So. Yeah, Stephen's uh, nation-state PowerPoint hacking, following the breadcrumbs things are amazing. Um, I don't even know how it gets it done. But uh, anyway, back on topic. Uh, let's see. So, uh, Tara, we're, we're going to start with you. Um, if you could just kind of explain to us, you know, what what was Judge Anderson's opinion and his order all about? Um, and then, you know, uh, feel free to expand upon that and do what you will. You got your mic off. Hope if I unmute myself. Uh, sure. So the magistrate judge's ruling um, in this case was a result of a bunch of back and forth uh, filings where the plaintiffs wanted a copy of Capital One's Mandiant's forensic report, period. That's how this all started. And Capital One wanted to not provide it in discovery because they say that it was privileged. And I don't mean to imply that it wasn't, but that was their argument. And then the plaintiff's argument is, no, it's not. So the magistrate judge held for a variety of reasons that the report itself was not protected by privilege. And there are a number of facts that the judge cited to in order to arrive at his conclusion. And in addition, uh, Capital One has since filed a reply, or rather a motion to reconsider. So it's possible the judge's argument will be opened up again, tossed out, add more facts, etc. But in essence, the main arguments that seem to be concerning for a lot of people, somewhat understandably, are the judge says, because Mandiant was retained prior to the incident, that's one factor the judge cited to, which led to the conclusion um, the fact that Mandiant had been paid before there was sort of an accumulation of hours under a retainer that were then used for other services like um, an assessment to assess Capital One's incident response preparedness. And then ultimately, Mandiant was engaged under a separate SOW to perform this incident response service. The judge also cited the fact that previous SOWs with Mandiant for regular services, not incident response, 
were almost identical to the incident response SOW. The only difference was in some of the wording, um, which actually I can pull up while I'm talking, but the judge's point being, you were just trying to assert privilege where you didn't have it. You thought if you issued one new SOW that that would take care of everything. And without going into the rest of the details at this point, nobody likes when lawyers say it's very fact intensive. I can't tell you what the answer is based on one or two things, but it's true. It's not us being evasive. It's just how it goes. So a judge in this type of case will consider a whole host of information. And that's not just with respect to forensic reports. It's with respect to any work done by non-lawyers for lawyers for their clients. So you can only establish, there's also multiple privileges and I won't get into them, but mostly people talk about attorney client privilege. There's also attorney worked product privilege, which is covered in the opinions and there are others as well. So there's different requirements for each, right? Now generally, wouldn't, wouldn't a IR report fall under that work product category? Uh, you know what I have to say, right? I know, depends, you tell me it depends. But, <laughs> but yes, is that possible? Is it possible? Yes. Is it probable if you follow the right steps? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the general answer to your question is, can an incident response forensic report be covered by the attorney work product privilege? Yes, absolutely. Right. And what about the investigation itself? Uh, so... <laughs> That also depends. So attorney-client communications privilege protects communications between an attorney and a client. It can't just be facts between the two. It has to be legal advice and it, or in support of providing legal advice. Mm-hmm. Um, with the work product privilege, it's a little bit different because it protects materials that are prepared in anticipation of litigation. Now, everything is somewhat prepared in anticipation of litigation if you're working with a lawyer, right? So um, mostly courts will say, was a particular analysis, investigation, exercise report done because of anticipated litigation? And in this case, the the judge didn't like that argument. Right. Do you have a comment there? No, one thing I wanted to ask was the scope of the report, right? So there seemed to be some distinction between was it created for a business purpose or attorney-client purpose? Was that, I mean, most of the... That's exactly right. Yeah, most of the reports that I had worked with, there was no such distinction, right? We just have the report, we use it, and there was no, even though attorneys are involved, so this may create additional scrutiny in all of our retainer agreements. Would you agree? It shouldn't. So I, I, I without intending to malign lawyers, a lot of underst- the, the people who are the lawyers who are most well-versed on privilege tend to be litigators because they deal with privilege all the time. And sometimes cyber or privacy lawyers are not as well-versed in that. The best case scenario, and I promise not to go on and on, but the best case scenario is um, the report was prepared or the investigation or the outside advisors, like think about CPAs, right? Lawyers can hire CPAs to do a financial investigation or assessment, and that work can be privileged if the CPAs were hired for the purpose of providing expert services that a lawyer doesn't have. So the lawyer can provide competent legal advice to his or her client. To your point, Arif, if experts are hired for a business purpose, that is not protected by either of the privileges that we were talking about. So factors that a court might look to are who engaged the IR firm? Was it the CTO, the CIO? Was it the general counsel? Was it the legal department? They will also look to see what is the content of the engagement letter. So to your point, um, Arif, should we scrutinize SOWs and contracts? No, because it cuts against you. If you try to assert that everything all the time is privileged, no matter what, then a judge is less likely to agree with you when you have a legitimate claim for privilege. Yeah, now so, one of the things the judge called out there was, you know, at least, at least from my, what my, what I read was that the contract signed through the legal office, but 
paid for out of non-legal funds, you know, somebody else's bucket of money, which to me, I was like, how would you even, you know, how how is an IR professional supposed to know where the check came from? You know, how how do you protect a client from something like that? Correct. Yes. I I don't think that, just for, if you think about if I, as a human individual, go to a lawyer, somebody else can pay for it and it doesn't affect whether or not that legal advice is privileged. The, the payor doesn't matter. So in this case, I think the part of the problem was that they had accrued something, some multiple of 285 hours or a total of 285 hours already had been paid for. And then they wanted to use some of that time. So for a business purpose, Manny was engaged and accrued all of these essentially free or paid for hours. Then when they were engaged to do incident response, the legal department engaged them, but Mandy didn't charge them extra separate money. They allowed them to use the credit they'd built up. So I don't think as a practical matter, that should be a concern of forensic firms who's paying for it. So I, have a, I have a question for you. Um, so I saw, you know, like not only just my reading and the kind of ruling, there's a couple things that we've discussed in, in related matters that seem to factor into the formula of the decision. Um, one of them was that it, whether it's the, just the nature of the SOW, those compiled hours, this idea that there obviously was a pre-existing relationship to do this type of work um, or potentially do this type of work or they had done similar work in the past. Mm-hmm. One aspect, um, and then I think I read another thing, I was kind of curious, you know, maybe it's the totality of all these things piling up, which kind of, you know, made it a, a bigger deal or potentially a bigger deal, depending on the reconsideration, um, was that they also kind of produced a report where the ruling basically said, you know, the report, had this not been prepared in, in, for litigation, wouldn't have been prepared substantially different. So you have a report that would have basically been written in a similar way regardless. And I was kind of curious if that played a, a pretty, you know, a potential major factor in that because they kind of said, well, if you were just doing a normal IR, it would look like this. You did a legal response, kind of looked the same. And then I didn't know how much, you know, that had particular weight in this more so than some of the other stuff where they're all equal. I don't know. You know, it's a great question. And the, the simplest answer is that there's no magic cure or uh, death warrant. So that's not the right phrasing to use, but, <laughs> but um, having the report not be particularly different is not a good idea. I mean, to me, all of these fall in the category of what's better and what's worse, right? It's better if the ultimate forensic report does not look identical to previous reports that have been written for business purposes. But if this, it's almost like a little bit like a smell test, right? Are you just trying to assert privilege, but we look at all the facts and circumstances and we say, look, there's just, that's not what you were doing. You just don't want this information to get out which courts generally don't want to do, or were you legitimately, did lawyers legitimately hire this company for the purpose of providing expertise to the lawyers that the lawyers need to provide legal advice to their client? Yeah, that's it. And that's it. Kind of what I, th- I, I kind of started thinking about some of the ways we've been engaged in UIR and we have cases where, Oh, we were brought in. They want to look into possible employee misuse and it's literally for a legal decision or HIPAA analysis or something like that. And, and to me, this, if I read this, I'm like, oh, those are clearly, you know, those cases. And we have others where we have ongoing work with a customer. We do an IR, you know, and it's really a technical investigation in part, potentially for legal purposes. But at the end of the day, they want to know how they were breached. They want to know what the remedial steps are or how they can prevent it from happening again and potentially memorialize, you know, some of that activity. Although sometimes with the legal involvement, you from what are you saying? We sometimes you memorialize or speculate or recommend a little bit less to be compliant. Um, but it, you know, it definitely seems to be clear difference sometimes in some of the work we do and others. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, I read this and I'm like, I don't, I don't know where that would stand if you know someone challenged it. You know, should there be a legal issue in our hand? So you're correct in that the judge points out and um, common knowledge about this or common opinion about this right now is. Um, no company could say we didn't need an investigation for business purposes, right? You, if you have a breach for your business purposes, you're going to have to conduct an investigation, figure out what happened. Wouldn't almost everything be for a business purpose. Even if it was just a fact finding investigation, 
you know, somebody's made that decision that we as the business need to need to have these facts. Yes. The trouble is that can't be privileged. I mean, could, That's could okay. Report, right, uh, sorry to interrupt. The, no, could, no, no, please go ahead. Could a report be in separate segments, so like operational focused report where you are dealing with te- technical stuff, business stuff that you distribute a little bit less uh, privileged way versus attorney product where you're looking at legal aspects, legal risks? Uh, yes. And I think, uh, so yes and no, it depends, right? There is something called subject matter waiver of privilege. So on the flip side of what we're talking about, which is you have to legitimately establish privilege with the factors that we've talked about and others. Even if you have established, legitimately established privilege in communications or an investigation or report, um, you can waive it accidentally by forwarding it to the wrong person or by sending it to lots of people. I'll just tell you from my perspective what I do. And I, you know, by no means I'm a primary civil litigator, but. And the the sending it to lots of people, that seemed to be really at the core of Judge Anderson's position was like, you sent this to just everybody and their brother in an uncontrolled almost manner. Yes. Uh, for lots of different purposes. Yep, that's right. And that makes it look like it was not a privileged document. It was for business purposes because you shared it with so many people. The best case scenario, which very few people do, although I think in the Target case they did, is you have two IR firms. One is engaged for business purposes and one is engaged for legal analysis. Right, That that is ideal. And the legal analysis IR firm is only talking to the lawyers or maybe also talking to the um, IT and operational folks inside the organization, but that that's a just totally separate exercise. As a practical matter, all four of us know that is extremely rare. It's really expensive. And when everybody's stressed out the first week of an investigation, the first 24 hours, nobody is willing to negotiate and listen to this nuanced legal argument about why we should do different things for privilege purposes, right? So the, the best case scenario, I'll just tell you to hopefully put some of the hyperventilation at ease is um, engaged through counsel, literally engaged through counsel, as you were saying, Steve, that the legal department is the one who actually engages the entity, not just signs the form, but also things that may seem stupid, like a privilege briefing where everybody has to get on the phone with the lawyer and poor Brian's had to listen to many of these from me. But at the beginning of this most recent um Engagement. If you've used an IR firm like Mania before in the Capital One situation, and then you come to now we want you to do instant response, stop. Get a small group of people on the phone who are working on this and talk through. Here's what privilege is. Here's what it isn't. Don't assume everything's privileged because then you're going to write down a whole bunch of stuff that I don't want you to write down. Still be careful. Don't think that this is the cloak of invisibility from Harry Potter. And limit your communications. If in doubt, pick up the phone right? Don't write things in an email that are completely speculative and might not be privileged. You just don't need to do that. Um, Then when do lawyers need to be part of the conversation? Some people think if a lawyer's on the phone, the conversation is privileged. Nope. Likewise, if a lawyer's not on the phone, the conversation can't be privileged. It depends. The lawyer needs to be directing and overseeing the investigation. So, if you have a lawyer involved in the main discussions, but then Arif calls Stephen and they're coordinating about how to get into a particular server or who's going to send what USB drive to whom or how they're going to put something on SharePoint, uh, that doesn't mean all of that work is no longer privileged. Yeah, thanks. I have, so I have another question. So we have the scenario, like let's take the, we can use a Capital One and then we can use a scenario to describe where you potentially have, you know, and you can also run into it too many cooks in it, a kitchen scenario, but you have two firms simultaneously for different purposes. I think like in the Capital One case, or which would often be the case with larger organizations or even some mid-sized organizations, you have a security team that's internal. They'll run, you know, cooperatively usually, but they can run their, potentially run their complete own separate investigation. I don't, I don't know that I know a ton about, the, you know, what, how Capital One specifically was run, but I think reading the documents, something like they were run, what they, what they called a separate internal investigation. They had the outside investigation yeah. Other side of that is what we run into. So we have that a lot with, you know, large companies that's, you know, they always have their own team doing stuff either in support of or potentially separate. But we also work with like small NGOs or some real, sometimes real small organizations, places that have like 12 employees. 
They don't have a security firm. They don't have any security capability. I don't. They don't have an IT team. Yeah, they don't. No, oh. they have no IT team. They have someone inside that does it, where they have a, a an MSV, an outside party that they do on support tickets. Some of them are bigger and they have a, a dedicated person, but they are not going to do any type of security investigation. And our involvement, or you know, similar you know, security firms involvement with an organization like that, is they are the internal team and they are the outside team. So I'm kind of curious, in the case where there is no possible inside investigation, whether done at you know, under legal, you know, attempted or proper legal privilege, if you are the only means by which an investigation can occur, that you're going to get all the technical details, they're going to be able to figure out nothing without you. Mm-hmm. Does, or how does that fit into this scenario? Because that's kind of like the other polar end of the, you know, the mid-range having two firms involved or the sure. firm involved. Well, and and involved. To, take, to take off of that, I mean, Arif and Stephen, you, you've both seen this where, you know, the report includes not only the investigation, but a bunch of, you know, basically security improvement type ideas and observations, you know, all globbed into one report, which I think there was some mention of that in in what the, what Judge Anderson also pointed out is that there was, it wasn't, it wasn't a hundred percent investigation. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I'll tell you from our legal things that recommendations or a bolded list of things we might have in a normal report, usually when we're engaged under counsel is often, um, it may be requested that that's omitted because if things are not done, we're usually told, you know, they, they potentially the advice that we've overheard um, is that you give a big list of recommendations. Um, you know, the, the fear is those are not done and this, you know, work that does become discoverable at some point and you didn't do those things right there. Well, it becomes a playbook for plaintiff's counsel, basically. They, they run right back down through this. <laughs> exactly. So. So what are you supposed to do, right? What, what right. does the company do that needs to know what to improve, but doesn't want to, and an admission or a playbook to plaintiffs. And it's a it's a it's a frequent client request. I mean, you know, you know, one, you know, how they get in, you know, what what went wrong, how much did they get, how much is this going to cost me, and then what should we do to fix it all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, and to Tara's point, I mean, a lot of times this is a lot of stuff is done on phone calls. Like they try to, you know, the the, the effort is to discuss this with counsel on the call, and you know, it's. I wouldn't say you know, it's a, a shady thing or anything, but just you know, the the goal is to not write down as much as possible in a lot of these cases. And that's like, a, I would say that's definitely a persistent theme. And I don't think that's necessarily probably unique to IT or cybersecurity with regards to you know, certain advice either. So. Exactly. And yet that shouldn't be considered as the cloak of invisibility either, because they can always depose somebody, you know, and unless you can, you could go down the argument of restricting that person's deposition for privilege reasons. But um Anyway, you're right. And, it's tricky. And uh, some of these reports have complete evidence of vulnerabilities, architecture, internal systems, which is competitive um, advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, when my Mandiant is doing investigations, they have access to all of this information. So they will put foot, footnotes and they'll have like screenshots, all kinds of stuff. So mm-hmm. that's why I was referring to could we conceivably separate these reports from operational business versus um, legal? Yeah, and especially keeping the reports as working drafts until everybody's agreed what should go into it is helpful. Just like the conversations you were talking about, um, it's much better when people can have an open discussion of what are the different balls up in the air here and what do we want to put in the report and what doesn't need to be in the report and okay, we may have to have a list of the things we need to fix and it may be discoverable. But one thing that can help in that situation is here's all the things that need to be fixed. Here's our prioritized list and here's our plan. We're going to fix these in three months. We're going to fix these in six months. We're going to fix these in two years. It's not perfect, but it, it, it's uh, one way of mitigating the damage from that if it's not privileged. So, so let's talk to the money side of this for a second. And Arif, I want to you you as the consumer of these services from companies like Amandian or, or Valencia or something like this, you know, um, the, the standard way, and I guess it's been this way since I don't know we started doing Amandian years ago was was you know this this upfront retainer that doesn't really work, even though the name's the same as a legal retainer. You're not working it off as you go or things like this. It's just sort of prepaid block of hours that if you don't use it this year, 
a vendor typically tries to slide in some other services or assessments or things like this to, to make up the difference. And then you owe them the same amount, you know, January 1 the next year and so on and so on and so on. Um, Capital One pushed on that a lot in their motion to reconsider, saying exactly what you just said. <laughs> right. Defeat. But, but the judge also seemed to hit on that as, you know, an, an item is, is, you know, because you're using this, what you first said was for incident response money as everyday, you know, assessment, you know, grunt IT security work, all, you know, whatever, whatever else might come up in there. And then you switch back over, eh, you know, it becomes funny. I think in most organizations, it's uh, signed by security IT teams uh, because they are the ones being approached by the vendors and, hey, this is what on a rainy day you can have this thing. You should sign it. Sometimes it's a $0 retainer agreement. Most of the time people don't even read it. It said there's no cost and we'll look at it when the need comes. So those scenarios. And one question I had was, could you... In this case, the one you're describing, Brian, the, could they conceivably have two retainers for a similar but different purposes in cases like this? So you have retainer in case of consulting or assessment, security work versus incident response, and we will get to choose, designate which retainer will fall under what. Right. And, well, and, and some organizations like to do that because of how they handle their money, right? You know, I'm giving this block of money at this line. And if I allocate it to your, your company's contract right now, I, you know, I've secured this money essentially from being taken by some other part of the IT organization. So, so I want to, I want to place that big blob of money with you and then we'll figure out what we're going to do with it over the course of the year or whatever. Right. And the relationship with, um, uh, are you with the IT department or a security department versus the legal team? Legals usually don't come into the picture until after the cybersecurity teams have, I mean, some mature organizations have policies in place to educate people to when to invoke uh, involves legal quickly. But for the most part, initial legwork when something is detected is done by security people, as Stephen was saying, like, the team works on it for for a day, a couple of days until figure out what it is and how long it's been, what's the depth and breadth of the breach before we involve other people, right? Right. So so what's you know, we're based on your experience, what's what's your preference for handling it? I mean, how do you how would you normally what are you looking for as the, the consumer of that? I think now after reading what we have been reading about Capital One's reports in the last uh, few weeks. To me, it looks like um, there may not be, we may need to have this uh, legal input right at the beginning and maybe potentially have uh, multiple. That's why I wanted to ask a question to Tara. Could you have um, multiple retainer agreements with the same firm um, with the scope, because one of the things that judge brought up was, oh, the scope was similar, both of the agreements. So could you make it distinguished enough to maintain privilege on one versus the other? Um, it's a good question. I haven't come across that, but as I'm thinking off the top of my head, um, yes, I don't know that just different statement of works would help statements of work, but if one engagement was through the legal department with that sort of preface language that I mentioned, which is Acme company has hired zero day law as our outside counsel to give us legal advice in connection with a potential incident. Acme doesn't have the expertise it needs to a prop properly advise. Acme needs forensic expertise. Steven has that expertise. Acme allows Zero Day Law to engage Stephen to provide that expertise. And Stephen's expertise is going to Zero Day Law for the purposes of providing legal advice to Acme or Arif, I should have said. If that is the case, that's 
highly, that's sort of your best case scenario for privilege, as long as each one of those things are true, right? I, I realize I keep saying that, but like I said, people try to claim privilege over everything under the sun. And for some people, that's a tactic and it works. People I highly respect. I think that makes your true privilege arguments less, hold less water if you're trying to make it everywhere. So a roundabout way of saying to you, Arif, that sounds like that could be possible. It could also be unsuccessful if a variety of other factors come into play, right? right? Really, the general counsel's office never looked at it. Really, they were never involved in it. Really, the, you know, Stephen and his team only ever met with you, Arif, and your IT team, and nobody ever talked to the general, to anybody in the legal department. Nobody in the legal department explained what privilege is and what the privilege protocols are and who has to be involved in what. Yeah, uh, one scenario I've seen is we had this agreement with a law firm uh, legal advice, uh, outside counsel, and basically they had retainers on their retainers with third-party investigators like Mandians and CrowdStrikes. And um, when one approach was always like go to the legal instead of going to, even though you, you may have direct contracts with them, so let them deal with this. So they initiated the relationship. That may cover, provide some privilege opportunity, I would imagine. Now, now, how much does it muddy the water when you have a situation like a FireEye who's selling product and services, you know, directly mm -hmm. into the IT and IT security branch of the house? And, you know, and then that's their primary focus. You're giving me hives, not about FireEye, but <laughs> 75 organizations. You, know, you, you can say there's about a bunch of different companies and CrowdStrikes and, and you know, everybody. Blacks and, you know, blah, blah, the, the velocities of the world is they're selling their products in, into, you know, into it. And then, you know, that very same client comes to you and says, I have this thing. Can you help me out? You know, and, and of course, you're going to say yes. Well, right. Even and we say that, yes, right? We, that's that's how we do it. We say yes. Well, hopefully only where you're able to perform the services, which is the case for you all the time. But, but, and sorry, but, please. Yeah, that separate part of your company doing this, you know, services IR thing. It's a nightmare. A contract vehicle in place that may be. And look, the worst, the worst the situation, the worst the incident, the more likely all of these things will go wrong just by Murphy's law, right? So one massive ransomware incident I worked on last summer. Perfect example. Multiple, <laughs> right, right? Yeah. Multiple billion dollar company. Everything came to a screeching halt, everything. But the they had outsourced their IT security services, like Stephen, like you were just talking, although they were a massive company. The SOC basically was outsourced. So understandably, the company providing the SOC probably, I'm putting words in their mouth, probably felt like they screwed up. They were asleep at the job and something happened. So they're in there trying to fix everything. And they don't really want to tell legal for the client what they're doing because they don't want the client to sue them saying you didn't do your pro IT SOC services properly because you let somebody in. And then they're not communicating with the Brian's of the world who get called in and the Stevens of the world who get called in, who are trying to do a forensic investigation on behalf of the company. Meanwhile, the pro outside stock sourced company then brings in their investigative team. Yes. It muddies the water. <laughs> makes it really, really hard. And look in these situations, everybody's well-meaning generally, but this situation where I worked on this, the CEO, the CTO, the CFO, the general counsel, the head of it, they were all, under immense pressure. They didn't have access to their normal email. They didn't have access to their, actually they, their VoIP phones were all down as well. But um, my best advice is for, this is not something that lawyers usually say, but have a good relationship between the legal department and the IT or the information security department. Because if you at least trust each other and trust that you both have the company's best interests at heart, then IT is not going to be suspicious of legal department trying to grab control something and make the IT folks look bad. And the legal department's not worrying that the IT department's hiding something. So in, in the best run organizations that I work with, um, you know, big multinationals, and the ones that, that really have it wired together well, 
there's actually attorney from legal assigned directly to the IT and, and IT security element, the SOC, the whole thing. And it's always their touchstone person for pretty much anything. And so everybody knows everybody, every, everybody's friendly with everybody. And then that relationship gets built um, versus the, you know, uh, less, less successful situation where the attorney walks in and goes, wow, I never, I didn't even know that. There's a lot of room in here, you know. <laughs> Never been to the IT department at all. How many of you guys are in here? You know, uh, that's, that's sort of just sort of barks orders at everybody because right. you're stressed out or whatever. But I mean, yeah, I'll tell you from the from the like you know, the managed security service provider, the incident response provider perspective, and we have uh, across the board different things. So we have you know, just interact with the IT department. We have ones where we know their general counsel and by name, and you know we're, we're on really good terms with them. We have others where we've never once heard from their legal department. You know, maybe they, their procurement department is actually the ones who even, you know, our contracts department handled the contract and didn't even see a legal oversight. You know, uh, you know, maybe it was there, maybe it wasn't. Um, but obviously from, from our perspective as the people doing like the instant response, you know, our first and foremost is we want to basically solve the problem and figure it out. And I'd say like a lot of the advice for, you know, which, who should connect or when they're going to connect, you know, if we get asked or it's sometimes it's painfully obvious, you know, we may say something, but you know, we operate in you know, trying to solve the problem, fix it, you know, technical analysis, stop the bleeding, put remediation in place. And we kind of like, you know, for the most part, you know, we kind of leave that largely to the client and like what they want to do. So we have cases where uh, outside counsel has been brought in for really small things and customers that like, well, we look at it and we're like, Oh my gosh, like, so, you know, maybe we even said something in involved counsel at all. And it's like, it's just kind of up to either, what their risk tolerance is, or it could just be a, a matter of knowledge. Maybe they just don't know that's an option or they don't think that's an option or maybe they don't want to pay for it. We have others, the first person they pick up and call is their insurance company. So, well, the insurance right. company yes. and then the outside counsel is involved or, you know, either in parallel or through the insurance company. So the route at which this stuff happens is quite variable depending on the customer. And, and from our perspective, we just want to, we just want to get the work done. We want to find the interesting stuff. We want to you know, crack the case. We just, we follow whatever the path of least resistance, but just do our job. Yep. We have to go through here and get on that call. We wanted that call as quickly as possible. And, 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 and so we just, noticed. <laughs> just we kidding. Just like, no, I'm just, kidding. I respect it. I respect it. And, and your point actually was part of the, uh, the argument in the capital one case, because capital one had to disclose information to regulators and, insurance companies and regulators, when you disclose information to them, it is not privileged anymore. Right. You have to do it, but counsel could try to just make it as um, unharmful as possible. That's not the word innocuous as possible, but it, it's just, it's, it's really hard to do. And, you know, I've been on the defending the client side, talking to regulators saying, if we give you this whole thing, it will be discoverable in litigation because we've waived privilege now and plaintiff's going to say, give us everything you've ever given to a regulator. And well, I don't think it. I've ever seen a cybersecurity insurance company pay out without a copy of that final report. I mean, that's, well, that's and, always a big piece of it. You know, we, we need that, that finalized version yeah. so we can provide it to the carrier because they're not going to give us a check until we do. That's right. And so Brian and I work to make those reports as transparent as they need to be, but no more transparent than they need to be. All right. So here's a topic I wanted to discuss. So I've been following this whole issue. I think it first came to light at all was uh, from cyberscoop.com. And they've had a pretty good dissertation of what's going on there, um, including attaching the, the legal documents, the opinions, and so forth. Um, not, not, not perfect. You got to go to Westlaw or something like that to get the rest of it. But the further I get away from that sort of legal end of the things and the more I get out into the cybersecurity, the discussions and things like this, the wilder and stranger the claims uh, get yes. about what this means to the industry. And so I, I wanted to talk specifically for Stephen and, and Reed. you know, what, what, what have you been hearing about it? Because I've, I've heard stuff, you know, I've read stuff where they're like, you know, the, the lead line is, you know, uh, Mandiant thinks blah, 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 you know, case, you know, and you're like, wait, it's, I don't even think they're, you know, 
other than that, then they wrote the report. I don't think that's really has anything to do with them, really. Um, it's mostly the handling of the document um, to, you know, uh, you know, companies need to be aware that incident response retainers are dead. It's just, just like the craziest, you know, sort yeah. of sort of publications out there. So, you know, what, what have you seen around this, uh, you know, as you as you're prepping for this? What, what did you come across? Yeah, so I probably have a, like an interesting take on this. So when it, you know, we don't, you know, we haven't followed this like, you know, in a everyday hour by hour, but when the, you know, the ruling first came out, yeah, definitely, you know, within the company, within the Lexity, you know, we discussed it and we marveled at it. And, uh, you know, some of the, it's a change of our business model. And I think for a lot of these, uh, at least the, the, the IR firms, I think not much from my perspective, I, I know, the way we do business, the way we've been engaging with, you know, uh, you know, multiple engagements we started since then. You know, at least one of them in the last couple of weeks with under underprivilege. Um, it, it doesn't really change a whole lot for me to operate. If anything, we kind of jokingly say, you know, if this potentially has more exposure to your report becoming public or discoverable, it's more of a motivator, uh, which you know, we already strive to do to make sure your report is actually a really good report. Because if you're an IR company is doing a crap job and now your work's going to be discoverable, you have to assume that it's going to be out there and everyone's going to see how you know, poor of a job you did. So, you know, we joke like, Hey, now this, you know, this happens, people actually see how good of a job we do. You know, it's actually mm-hmm. good to see the reports and the, the quality of our work. So we got kind of jokingly inside said, Hey, you know, if this happens with one of our customers, the report gets out there and it's like a, a good advertisement for us. Cause we think our, our work product is really nice. But, you know, in terms of uh, like actual, like worrying about, Hey, are, are people worried about retainers? Have you heard, have you heard a customer existing or new, um, voices or even mentioned this, I'm not not a one so far, and I didn't come up with some of the law firms that we've talked to recently um, in terms of like the ongoing work or anything like that. I mean, obviously, people are um, you know hoping, and I think you know probably a lot of people would hope that the decision would be reconsidered. Kind of what Tara mentioned, you know, obviously you know, this has impacts one on I'd say largely the the companies trying to engage privilege, and obviously a lot of law firms have started. You know, this has been a, a tactic or a way to kind of you know provide work in, you know, business avenue for them. So, you know, if somehow this thing all got tossed out and it got worse and worse, you know, it'd be, it'd probably be detrimental to a lot of um, abilities to claim privilege and obviously business models for folks. But you know, I don't think it's like, like you said, is it you're further, further away? It's like, Oh, it's crazy. But if you actually look at, you know, that ruling, it's, it's around, you know, I were just speculating on what the formula of all those things is, which one's the most, Narrow. but it's not, it's not like, this one thing where all security stuff is bad, you know, yeah. explanation of things and it, and, and all might get reversed. Like you said, so may you know, there may be still no precedent of overturning anything. I, you know, that's not my realm, but you know, I'd say from our perspective, uh, it doesn't change the way we operate. Um, but you know, I, I could see why people would be concerned um, or potentially should be concerned. Um, but like I said, from my earlier point, we just look to solve the task at hand. If they say, we got to CC all these people, put this footer on the thing, make sure in a phone call, don't have them not CC. We just follow that. Whether that ends up being privileged or not, that's not for us to say. We just do our job and you know as best we can and follow the directions we're given so we're not straying from that and being the obvious cause as to why privilege would be lost or something. And that's and that's that's and that's what I took from the opinion. So, so Reef, if I'm working for you, you know, and and I I don't have any impact, uh, you know, on on the client if I say, you know, hey, don't don't send this to whoever. They're not going to listen to me. <laughs> they're going to do whatever their businesses processes are for that. And, and, uh, you know, so. And <laughs> That's when I get a call. Uh, Tara, this is Brian. Just want to make sure yeah. I'm right. These people say they don't have to do this. <laughs> but, but that, that is, that is a pretty standard, standard thing. If those, those reports do get spread around widely. Right. Yeah. They, I, they shouldn't. If they're, if, they're properly, if you establish privilege in them, distributing them can cause an inadvertent waiver. Interesting. I think um, those reports may also contain a lot of dirt, dirty stuff that we don't want right. to be public anyway because it has our vulnerabilities, it has our potential weak spots that we may not be able to address immediately. They're long-term. It may take long time to, to architectural changes, investments, and all that. And then Another judge said, distributed widely. What is widely? And that's the one thing I always get. Like, what is widely? Like, who do we, I mean, need to know basis? That's what I say. I tell people, like, absolute need to know for yeah. as part of the incident remediation response activities. But there will always be other people. So, what is your take on that, Tara? Like, 
what is considered widely distributed versus absolute need to know? So think of it like who is on the team, the privileged team, right? And so the number of people, obviously it's better the smaller the number, but what's crucial is have they all been briefed on privilege? Are they all observing the privilege protocol, meaning put this in email, don't put this in email, include these people on phone calls, whatever. If it's those people who are receiving it, then that's usually okay. And it should be okay because they're the ones who understand that the purpose of this particular piece of work we're working on is to advise lawyers so the lawyers can advise the company. Right. Reef, help me out here. So if I'm thinking about all the offices inside a company that that report goes to, I mean, it's going to end up in risk. It's going to end up in audit. It's potentially going to end up, you know, in, on the CFO's desk. Uh, one from how IT is sometimes strangely structured under, under, under finance, things like that. But, you know, to, to the bill paying portion of it, I mean, uh, you know, it could end up uh, could end up in a board, you know, meeting presentation distribution yes, packet. That's not a good idea. You know, you know all all, <laughs> well, the I mean, all those things. Not to mention the copies that are going to make their way to you know around the IT three department and, and things like this. I mean, you know, yeah, uh, I think the reports. Uh, I my my advice and my approach has always been the. Grant the big report should never go to everybody. I think we always made a summary of a one-page, two-page summary to distribute to the board and uh, CFOs. They want to see the bills. They want they look at the receipts and invoices. They want to sign off, and then we'll have all those conversations. But this is like Greek and Latin. They don't understand these reports, and why do we need to send it right. to them? So <laughs> we always keep it to those. When I have seen also an approach where um, Tara, you may have seen it, but. After the a breach, people create a separate communication channels, which are designated as privileged. They're still email, but not the corporate email, but private proprietary email communication channels. And that's all. Is that a good enough privilege approach? We would need at least six hours to talk about Slack and Signal. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we have done all of those, yep. Wicker me or whatever else. <laughs> All right. Well, since we don't have six hours um, and, and we've actually reached our time limit here, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, I really appreciate your time and and, uh, and the time that you put into going through and reading all this ahead of time. I greatly appreciate that and uh, showing up on a Friday for me. I, uh, that's great. Everybody comb their hair mostly except for a reef. Touch that up later. <laughs> But uh, I, don't, I don't have a problem. <laughs> thank you all very much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you and talking to you all again soon. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Brian. Thanks, everyone. Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cyberry podcast. And make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.